Join me now, if you will, in the book of Ephesians in chapter 6, and we're going to pick it up today in verse 5. As you're turning to Ephesians 6, 5, I heard a story about a man, he was on a cross-country road trip, and he, he got a little hungry around lunchtime, he was in a new state, he pulled off the side of the road, saw a burger stand there, walked up, ordered his lunch, found a bench, sat down and enjoyed the cool of the day, and as he was eating his lunch, he was watching a couple of county workers, and he recognized them as workers for the county because of the insignia on their pickup truck. They were out there in their khaki uniforms with a patch on the sleeve. Each man, two of them, uh, had a shovel in their hand, and one guy uh, would dig a hole about three feet wide, three feet deep, and he'd put the dirt off to the side, and then the other guy would step up, scoop up that dirt, fill in the hole, and pack it down. And then the first guy moved over to the next spot, dug another hole, three feet wide, three feet deep, put the dirt off the side, second guy come along right behind him, scoop it all up, Fill that hole back in, pack it down. And this they repeated over and over all along the side of the road there. And this man watched this. He thought, what curious behavior. And he finished his lunch. He couldn't stand it anymore. He walked up to him. He said, excuse me, uh, fellas, I, I'm new here. I, I've been watching you guys. I just, I just wondered, uh, you mind telling me what in the world you're doing? And the first guy leaned on a shovel, wiped his brow. He said, well... We're actually a team of three, and we're planting trees, but one feller's called in sick. <laughs> now, it may be that in your job, you have often felt like the things you do seem a little uh, like you're just going through the motions. You ever feel that way? You ever, you ever wonder, if I didn't show up here and do this thing, would it really matter? Well, how many of you believe that the Bible answers questions, even questions like that? And, and it speaks to this issue today. What we have been reading about over the last few weeks in chapter 5 is this all-important notion of being filled with the Spirit. And we've, we've seen what that is to look like in various contexts and in various relationships. We've seen what being Spirit-filled looks like in the church. In that context, in our relationships with one another, we've seen what it looks like in the context of the home, and we've looked at the relationship between husbands and wives, and between parents and children, and today we are being introduced to yet another context and yet another relationship. And the context that we're going to look at today is the workplace, and the relationship is that of employers and employees. And so let's read this passage together. I'm going to read it in its entirety, and then we'll pray, and we'll dive in and tear it up a little bit. But in verse 5, Paul says, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. This is going to be interesting 
little study today. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much that your word is so practical and that it is so clear. There is great clarity here, God. Uh, And yet, you have also placed in the heart of every believer your Holy Spirit, Lord. And by that Spirit, we discern and we decipher and we apply what it is that we read in your word. And so we pray for that today. We ask that there would be an illumination of this text that we perceive spiritually and that we put it to practice in our daily life. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's take a look here. Uh, Paul has started off by addressing bond servants. Bond servants. Now, your version of the Bible might have a different word there. It might just simply say servants. It might say slaves. And sometimes when you see the word slaves or slavery in Scripture, it makes people uncomfortable. And that is why many English translations have instead the word bond servants. That's sort of an invented word in English, but the the original Greek word here is doulos, and I'm here to tell you that the best translation for doulos is slave. And yet that word has some connotations. When we think of slavery, we think of, uh, well, uh, in, in America, our context would be the Civil War. We think of men that are taken against their will, and they are They are enslaved. And so this makes people uncomfortable when they read about it in Scripture. And as critics point out, it does not appear that the New Testament goes out of its way to condemn slavery. And the fact is, as we read this passage, you will not see Paul condemning slavery. Why is that? A couple things. I just want to address and get this out of the way. First of all, just because the New Testament doesn't condemn something does not mean that it condones it. You need to understand that. Paul does not condemn it. It's also true that Jesus never condemns slavery, as it were. Uh, However, I would also point out Jesus never condemns bestiality. And yet, I don't think there's any question that he would oppose such a thing as that. But the New Testament, you must understand, recognizes certain things as realities in the society uh, in the time in which this book was written. And the primary purpose of the Scripture is to point people to God to point people to salvation. It does not uh, intend to, in a general sense, reform society. There are certainly applications for the believer to be salt and light, and that will have an impact on society. But Paul's mission here is not to reform his society. His preoccupation is with the believer. We've gotten some examples over the last chapter of how Christians are to behave In society, according to various substructures that we have. And so he is concerned with the Christian. Second, I would point out, although slavery was a reality in Paul's day, it was not the kind of slavery that you and I think of when we think of slavery. As I said, our context in America would be something like the Civil War. And we we think of slavery as as being uh, predicated on the color of one's skin, on the superiority of one race over another. Today, we've got human trafficking, which is largely a a, a form of sexual slavery. Well, this is, is actually neither of those. This is not reflective of those ideologies at all. This was more economic in nature. And it, it was not racial or sexual. It was, it was this notion whereby people could not pay debt. They could not meet their own financial needs. And so they made a willful decision to enter into indentured servitude. They would sell themselves into slavery in order to ensure that the needs of their family or of themselves were met 
And so this was a slavery more based on economics. This was not the taking of someone against their will, which is why perhaps you don't see Paul condemning it in those senses. Because the Jewish law already condemned it. We read in, his, in Exodus 21, 16, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. That seems pretty clear, doesn't it? And so the Bible does, in fact, condemn slavery. Paul doesn't need to condemn what God's word has already condemned. This is something else altogether. It is economic in nature. And it was not uncommon in Paul's day to see people who were doctors, lawyers, even politicians who were also slaves to make sure that their economic needs were met. And so this is the Apostle Paul looking at another existing substructure of society. It might shock you that there were six million slaves in the Roman Empire in that day. Almost one out of every two people. That, that is by far the largest demographic in that day. Uh, that people were either voluntarily slaves or born into it, you see. Uh, there are seven epistles in your New Testament that address slaves specifically. Uh, James, the brother of Christ, he wrote in his letter, he said, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? You can just imagine how that resonated with almost 50% of the populace in that day. And so Paul is not here to condone slavery, uh, nor is he here to condemn this. He is recognizing it as a present reality. It is an existing substructure of his society. And throughout what we've read so far in Ephesians, Paul has addressed some of those relationships, and he's given us the divine counterpart. He talked about husbands and wives, and he drew a parallel to Christ and the church. And he issued divine commands. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. He looked at the relationship between children and parents. And he, he cited the Old Testament. Ten commandments. Honor your father and mother. And this is why children must honor their parents. And yet in this particular relationship with slaves and masters, Paul does not offer a divine counterpart. He doesn't offer a justification for this institution. He doesn't try to eradicate it. What he does is he addresses those who are part of this institution and how they can transform these relationships from the inside out. Because in that first century, it was unlikely that the abolition of slavery was ever, ever going to happen. We see the abolition of slavery in the uh, 19th century, and who was it that brought it about? It was Christians. It was Christians. But in Paul's day... Uh, Rome's whole economy was based on this system. And so what Paul does, he is concerned with not the system, but with the Christian. And he wants to speak to the Christian slave and to the Christian owner. To speak into their existence as followers of Christ so that they conduct themselves within that system in a manner that reflects the Lord Jesus Christ. And so for you and I, we don't live in a system that is exactly like that. But what I want you to understand in your notes, and I've already printed this on your page there, is that the modern context closest to what Paul is describing is the employer-employee relationship. Let me ask you, does this book, does the Bible have anything to say about how people are to conduct business? Does it have anything to say with the ethics of commerce 
and, and, and a boss and his relationship to his worker? Absolutely it does. One of my favorite Bible teachers, theologians, he's now in heaven. His name is R.C. Sproul. Uh, he was speaking uh, to a, a group of executives of a large corporation, and he was linking the Bible and business, and this made some of the members of the board rather uncomfortable. They didn't understand. Why, why are we talking about all this theology? What does this have to do with our bottom line? And so they were uncomfortable with that. But at one point, the chairman of the board spoke up because something had clicked with him. He said, let me, th- let me see if I got this right. He says, uh, our business life is affected by how we treat people. How we treat people is a matter of our ethics. Our ethics are determined by our philosophy, and our philosophy reflects our theology. So respecting people in the workplace and in business is really a theological matter? And R.C. Sproul knew he'd gotten it exactly. Because... You can't have business without ethics. And you can't have ethics without the absolute of God. And that's what this book exists for. It is practical in all areas of life. And so if you are here today, you are a worker, you are an employee, Paul's words to the bondservant are for you. There is an application. So let us look first at Paul's instructions to the Christian employee. Okay? Let's just break this down line by line. Verse 5, it says, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters. Obey. Now that word ought to be familiar to you. We have uttered that many times as we've looked at these substructures of society. And so in your notes, in keeping with God's design for the home and, and other places, the anchor for the Christian employee is obedience. That is the anchor for your life in a practical sense. Obedience is the law of the land. With God, we are obedient. Everybody is obedient to somebody. And for the worker, you must be obedient to your employer. You are to be subordinate. When you take a job, you put yourself under management. Areas of commerce and business have always been this way. You are rewarded for good work. You can be laid off. You can be fired. But that's how business, that's how commerce works. You obey those over you. That's our action. And there are some attitudes for, in fact, that accompany that action. I'm going to give you some of them. So Paul goes on. He says, obey your earthly masters. How? With fear and trembling. And so this is not just an action. There's an attitude. And number one in your notes, it's an attitude of respect. Fear and trembling. Now that doesn't mean that you're terrified of your boss. Some of you may be. Some of you may be afraid of your boss, okay? That's not the context here. This is respect. They are over you. They are observing you. They're watching your demeanor, your work ethic, your output. And yes, they can fire you. And so, uh, you know, maybe there is a healthy fear there. Maybe there is a healthy awareness of the risk associated with not doing that good of a job. So a certain kind of fear possibly is appropriate, but what is absolutely necessary, what is, what is not up for debate, is that you must respect your boss. You say, well, what if I don't agree with my boss? Doesn't matter. Does not matter. Has nothing to do with whether you agree with the call that your boss is making. Just like the husband and wife relationship, okay? Uh, just like the, the parent-child relationship, we are commanded by God 
to honor one another. It's not contingent upon behavior, especially if, if he has placed this authority above you. Now, if you don't respect your boss, if you don't want to do what your boss tells you to do, you have an option, don't you? What do you do? Well, you can quit. You can quit. Now, that wasn't an option. In Paul's day, it is in our day. Nobody is forcing us to go to work for this particular employee, okay? So you've already got a leg up on people in Paul's day. You say, well, I can't quit. I need the money. Well, then you better respect your boss, okay? That's how this works. Now, of course, that's not to say that you have to do everything your boss tells you to do that is immoral. You understand. Sometimes bosses might call upon their employees to compromise their spiritual principles, their faith. When that circumstance arises, you don't have a choice. You have a higher authority than that individual. And so you must leave your job if that's a non-negotiable. Okay? But this idea, this notion of respecting your employer, this is often the first thing that changes when somebody becomes a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. They begin to allow their faith to impact their various relationships. You notice it in their home. You notice it in their friendships. And yes, you notice it in the workplace. It has an impact on how they relate to their employer. So Paul says, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. And he goes on and says, with a sincere heart. And so this is an attitude, number two in your notes, of authenticity. Authenticity. This phrase here, sincere heart, this is the Greek word hoplates. Hoplates. You know what it means? It means simplicity. A sincere heart is a heart of simplicity, okay, as opposed to duplicity. What is a duplicitous person like? That's a two-faced person. You're two-faced. That's when you, you greet your boss in the morning and you're like, well, good morning, sir. How are you? And you smile and then your boss walks away and you're like, I can't stand that so-and-so. I wish, I wish God would give him a case of hemorrhoids. I tell you, you know. <laughs> That's two-faced. This is the person who works hard when the boss is watching. And when they're not, you're sloughing off, right? You're loafing. You're surfing the web, all of that stuff. No, no. You need to be authentic, all right? Now you say, well, how can I be authentic with somebody that I don't really like? Well, Paul, Paul tells you how to do that. He goes on, he says, you do this as you would Christ. See, you, you don't think of it as doing it for them. You do it for Christ. You serve them as you would Christ. You're doing it for the Lord. Verse 6 is not by the way of eye service. Doesn't matter if he's watching you, not watching you. You don't do it, Paul says, as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ. You're not a slave to that person. You're a slave to Christ. You do it for the will of God from the heart. This is how we have already seen we are to live out in, in all of our relationships. This is how Christian wives submit to husbands who are boneheads. Okay, You don't respect him because he's respectable. You respect him out of duty to Christ. This is how husbands love wives who are shrews. Okay, You love them. You lay down your life for them as Christ loved the church and laid down his life for her. This is how Christian children honor parents that are not believers. You have to have this perspective of, I am doing this as unto the Lord. And Paul says in verse 7, rendering service with a good will. 
a goodwill. You can underline that phrase, goodwill. As to the Lord and not to man, that phrase, goodwill, uh, belies another attitude in your notes. This is number three, kindness. You serve with an attitude of kindness. The word, the, the, the phrase, goodwill, is eunoia in the Greek. It means kindness. That means you work as though you want to be there. Some of you are like, eh. No, no. Think you do that job as though on your day off, this is what you'd be doing. Some of you are like, Pastor Scott, are you smoking beer right now? I don't even understand how that... No, this is what I'm saying here. Uh, how many great people in the Bible were always great and they never had to start in a lowly fashion? The connotation here is that you are, you are working to make that person successful. Whoever is over you, your mission at that job is for that individual to succeed as your boss, okay? Uh, there are no people that start off on top. Everybody starts in a lowly state. And as they do that, they are, as Christians, to treat their superior with kindness, to be a blessing to them, to enhance their standing. That, my friends, is what a godly employee does. It is your obedience to Christ, and it is your testimony to your boss. You say, well, my boss doesn't know the Lord. All the more reason for you to do this. It's a testimony. It is a witness to non-believers in authority over you. And we see this in the Old Testament. So many saints of God that worked to make their boss successful. Jacob made his uncle Laban wealthy as he worked for him, even though Laban changed his pay structure like 10 times. Joseph was a good shepherd for his father. He was a good servant for Potiphar in Egypt. He was a good helper to the jailer when he was incarcerated. And he was a tremendous prime minister for the Pharaoh. David made Saul successful. Nehemiah made Artaxerxes successful. Mordecai in the book of Esther, he made King Ahasuerus successful. Moses made his father-in-law Jethro successful. Daniel made two kings successful. He served Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon and Darius the Mede. And we see this time and time and time again. And as you do this, you're not compromising. You're not sucking up. You're not selling out to the man. You're being obedient to God. You're doing what he called you to do. You are faithfully serving him by faithfully serving those he has placed over you. This is how it is to work. And we have an attitude here in your notes, number four. It's, it's, it's not just for them. It's also for you. There is an attitude of expectancy. An attitude of expectancy. Look what Paul says in verse eight. Now listen to this. You're gonna like this. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord whether he is a bondservant or is free. Okay, did you catch that? Were you paying attention? Let me read that again. Knowing, okay, your, your, your job is to make this person successful. Verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord whether he is a bondservant or is free. You say, what's in this for me? Well, that's not your primary concern, but since you asked, there appears to be a promise here. Did you know this? That there is a return 
on investment for the way that you do your job, the right attitude that you infuse into that, the work ethic that you apply to that, there is apparently a reward. When does that reward come? In eternity. It might not be in the short term. Now, you might have some benefit that is the result of your hard work uh, in a practical sense on the earth, but there is a much, much greater reward because our God rewards in eternity uh, on a level you can't even fathom. And so Paul is trying to say something that's very important that we got to get our heads around and our arms around, and it's this, that work, whatever kind of work you do, has dignity. And the day is coming when God will acknowledge that. God told Daniel, but go your way, Daniel, until the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place. When? At the end of days. Your day is coming, Daniel. A great God can honor those in the lowliest system simply because God knows how they did their job. God knows the attitude, the heart, the passion, the effort, the work ethic. And here we've got a proper theology of work. This is a workology, all right? All work has dignity. All work. Now, I'm not talking about immoral jobs, okay? So this doesn't apply if you're a hitman or an exotic dancer, okay? But all honest God uh, uh, consistent work is acknowledged and rewarded by God and so there should be a place for people to work and to be rewarded on the basis of the quality and attitude that they put into that work. This is what we call the Protestant work ethic. There was an event it took many 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 years it was called the Protestant Reformation it started in 1517 Martin Luther uh, nailed his 95 theses or grievances with the Church of Rome, nailed them to the door of the cathedral in Wittenberg, kicked off this thing called the Protestant Reformation. I am extremely glad for that event because if that had not happened, we'd either be Catholic or lost or both. But one of the results of the Protestant Reformation was this understanding, this recognition, because a major issue in the Reformation was authority. And the church assumed all authority. They said everything stops and starts with us. Whatever we say, whatever the Pope says, that is your authority. Martin Luther said, I beg to differ. Our authority is Scripture, sola scriptura. And so the, the Word of God is our lone authority. But when we read the Word of God, what do we read in there? That he has placed these structures of authority over you. The government and your, your employers, your earthly masters. And so we see that. And the Christian is to have uh, an attitude of respect and honor toward those, not because of them, not because authority stops with them, but because our ultimate authority is God himself. And so there is now a joy and a purpose that goes into it. We don't just serve the man, okay? We don't just serve somebody because we gotta. They say we got to. No, we do it out of love and obedience to the Lord our God. And there is an order and there is a structure and a purpose to it all because the Christian life is not just this echelon of the priest leading the rest of us yokels and we just sort of draft behind their religiosity. Our life has more meaning than that. There's a greater plan in place. 
And so after the Reformation and in the ensuing centuries, eventually we had an industrial revolution. So now we had, we had these classes of people that became apparent. You had business owners and managers, and then you had a working class. And you could identify among the working class who the Protestant evangelical believers, born-again Christians, were because the way they worked was different from the people who didn't know God. They did it to serve God. And it gave them joy in their work. They were naturally, Christians are ideally, naturally better workers because of this perspective. This is a proper work ethic. And some people struggle with that because our jobs seem so insignificant. We think, you know, I just can't wait to get out of here. And they just kind of phone it in. And they think, you know, one of these days I'm going to get out of this joint and I'm going to really start serving the Lord. No, you're not. No, you're not. If you're not serving the Lord right now, you're not going to serve him later. You're just not because you, you haven't developed the right perspective. What does Luke 16.10 say? One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. You're just revealing who you are by how you do your job. Do you think of your job as an, as an expression of worship? Do you do things as unto the Lord? That's not always easy. We've all had dumb jobs. We've all had silly, odd, peculiar jobs. If I stood up here and I just went down my list of all the weird jobs that I've had, we'd be here all day. One of the strangest jobs that I ever had, uh, I, I did this when I was in high school. I did it in the summertime when I was in college. And I worked at a place uh, in my hometown in South Dakota called Gigglebees. Gigglebees. You're already laughing, yeah. If you grew up in the 80s and 90s in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, you knew about Gigglebees. It was sort of a, a family fun uh, pizza arcade kind of place, all right? It was sort of the, the Northern Plains answer to Chuck E. Cheese is kind of what it was. But it was like a poor man's Chuck E. Cheese. And, uh, but it was pretty fun. I mean, the, the first part of the building was the restaurant, the pizza place and all that. Second part of the building, that's where they had all the bumper cars and the video games and the, uh, you know, the putt-putt and all that. But the real centerpiece of Gigglebees, what it was known for, was where I came in. You see, my job, I, I, my title was, I was called a botter. A botter. A bot, that was a slang term for robot operator. Okay? Because the mascot of Gigglebees uh, was a robotic coyote. The state animal of South Dakota was the coyote, and, and they had a robotic coyote named Wilbur. And in fact, I got a picture of Wilbur. Let me show you. That's Wilbur. <laughs> and I should say, that was me. And so as you can see, Wilbur rode a tricycle. Now, I'm not in there. I'm not inside that thing. I'm not that little, okay? Uh, I wasn't then either, uh, but he rode a tricycle. Now, you could see there's a track on the floor that the tricycle runs on, so Wilbur would go around from table to table, and so I sat in a darkened room, a booth, behind a one-way mirror, you couldn't see me, and I had on a headset and a microphone, and I had some remote controls, and I could move Wilbur forward and backward, and I could turn his head from side to side, and when I spoke through the microphone, Wilbur's eyes would light up, his mouth would open, and my voice would come out of Wilbur. That's right. And so I would talk to people in the persona and voice of Wilbur. 
And so I would pull up in front of the, uh, the window, uh, in front of the kitchen, Wilburwood rather, and uh, he's got a tray, as you can see, and so somebody from the kitchen would slide a pizza onto that tray, and they would say to me something like the following, Hi, Wilbur, uh, Jacob is celebrating his ninth birthday at table seven. And that was my cue to pedal on over to Jacob's table and start yapping away and singing in the goofiest coyote voice that I could. And it would sound like this. Oh, Jacob, 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 Jacob. A happy, happy, happy birthday. Hey, you silly goose. And so I'd get there and I'd do the obligatory happy birthday song and I'd tell about, you know, 9,000 goofball jokes and I'd let the second graders box my ears and nose for about, you know, an hour. And that was how this went. And you want to know something? This job, sometimes you'd have to go eight hours talking like that. And it would wear your voice out. And I would go home talking like that. And my dad would be like, uh, can you knock that off, you know? <laughs> and so this job, it, it, it got to be, it was pretty, oh, who am I kidding? This was an awesome job. <laughs> you know, if this doesn't work out, I may go back to this. But uh, <laughs> the point is, I did this with everything I had. I put everything into this job. I gave 110%. My employers knew that. And th thus, it was never a problem for me to take work off. If, if I wanted to be off on Sundays, go to church. If I want to go to church camp or some uh, a Christian event or something like that, it was never a problem because they knew that I, I cared about my job. That is the Christian work ethic. Okay, bye, Wilbur. See you later, buddy. Um, that is our work ethic. That is what we are called to. It's, it's the new... Uh, expression of worship to God. Worship after the post-Reformation uh, Re years, it was no longer merely communion or baptism or confession. It was being a plumber. It was being an electrician. It was flipping burgers. It was being a robotic coyote operator, all right? You do it all, no matter what it is, as unto the Lord. This is our application. So that's Paul's word to the employees. Now, what about the employers? Here we begin to look at Paul's instruction to the Christian employer. He's given us the ethic of Christian labor. Now he's going to talk to masters about the ethic of Christian authority. Can people in authority abuse that authority? They can. We, we, we've, we've seen it, right? Some of us have experienced that worse than others, perhaps. Paul's going to say here there has to be a morality in economics, Laissez-faire uh, economics is a form of capitalism that is totally void of regulation. You can't just treat people however you want just because they work for you. You can't work a kid 12 hours a day in a sweatshop. There are things you cannot do because man has dignity and honor and you must treat them rightly. And so Paul establishes that from a biblical perspective. Verse 9, he says, Masters, do the same to them. Them being the employees. Masters, do the same. What does that mean, do the same? Number one in your notes, it means hold to the same relational standard as your employees. All the attitudes that I just went through for the worker, you as the boss, you've got to adopt those. That means if a worker treats you with respect, you treat him with respect. You honor them. They honor you, you honor them. They serve you with sincerity, uh, simplicity, that means you're not two-faced with them. You are honorable. You are authentic. You tell them the truth. You don't seek to manipulate them. Um, a lot of us have been employed in places where we were just numbers, where we were taken advantage of. 
Okay, that ought not be the Christian workplace. And so as a boss, you're going to consider that, that these are people, okay? And you want to honor them. And so you do what is right for them. You consider what is beneficial for them. Now, the the more employees you have, the broader workforce that you're over, you have to make decisions that are consistent. Not everybody's going to like the decisions that you make. Not every decision is going to work out for every single person. But that doesn't mean that you don't pray about it and consider all of that. Sometimes you make a hard call. It doesn't affect everybody in the same way. But it's not, the decision-making process is not devoid of your consideration of what's best for your employees. And, and you, you need to demonstrate this because it's, it's a testimony to your workers. I, I heard a story about a, a speaker, a pastor, who was speaking at another church in another state. And he was on the front row, and one of the deacons from the church went up there. He was standing on the platform, and he's praying before the service. And he's praying one of these very verbose, very flowery, very stately prayers, right? And uh, the speaker heard the lady standing next to him go, huh, kind of snorted. And when the prayer was over, the speaker kind of looked over at her and he said, uh, you, uh, you know that guy? She goes, I work for him. Because he'd blown his testimony as her boss. She didn't take him seriously on that platform. And so this is a testimony, you got to hold to the same standard if you want to retain influence. you got to do to them as you expect them to do to you. Hey, does that sound like a verse that we might know? Sounds like the golden rule, doesn't it? Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. And so uh, do the same. Do the same. Now that carries one really big glaring aspect. The people who serve you, what are they? They're servants. So if you're going to do the same as they do, what do you got to be as a boss? You've got to be a servant. Matthew 20, verse 27, whoever would be first among you must be your slave. You serve, right? Number two in your notes, though you're in charge, you have the mindset of a servant. The best kind of leader is a servant leader. Nobody modeled that better than Jesus. Nobody. He lowered himself to the form, uh, the form of a servant, even unto death. Uh, he washed those disciples' feet as they're arguing about who's greatest in the kingdom. He's girding himself. The creator of everything is girding himself with a towel, kneels down, washes their feet. He's a servant, okay? Uh, we are already told in this very book earlier that we are to serve one another, submit to one another. And if you are in control of other people, if you are over other people and they are serving you, they will do so much more gladly, much more effectively if you are serving them. And then Paul goes on in verse 9, he says, and stop your threatening. Stop your threatening, which is number three in your notes. Authority isn't to be abusive. Just because you're the boss doesn't mean you get to yell at your employees, doesn't mean that you intimidate them, doesn't mean you rule by fear, you don't verbally abuse them, you don't threaten them. Does threatening reap a good result consistently? It does not. A spirit-controlled, spirit-filled employer is gentle, not abusive, never threatening. Threats don't have a value, ultimately. There are a bevy of other things employers can use to get results from their employees, use rewards. Use compensation. Give them incentive. Affirm them. 
when appropriate. Stimulate their faithfulness by being faithful yourselves. Now, some bosses might be out there thinking, well, I, uh, I seem to think that fear works pretty good for me. I get good results by intimidating my employees. If I, if I rule them with an iron fist, they're going to do what I need them to do. Okay, maybe that's true. But if you're a Christian, you're not called to that. You're not called to that. You're called to this. Why do this if something else might work for you? Because as someone who names the name of Christ, we have to conduct ourselves in a way that honors Christ. Paul says, verse 9, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. And this leads us to the fourth point in your notes. You've got to see all people the way God sees them. You see all people the way God sees them. You don't see them as, as just uh, an asset. You don't see them as your personal property. They're not numbers. You see them how God sees them. That's an eternal perspective. God is watching. God is our final authority. You, as the, as the boss, you are serving for a divine evaluation. God is not impressed by your accomplishments. He's not exactly bowled over by your power. What power you think you have came from him. He's not impressed with your authority. It's like Jesus said to Pilate, you'd have no authority except that which my father has given you. So it all comes from him. And so you are to be a steward of what God gives you. That workforce is given to you by God. You treat them with dignity, with respect. And by the way, if you are a Christian, and that is who Paul is addressing here, the Christian master, the Christian employer, you may have employees under you that are not believers. What is to be your testimony to them? How will you minister to people who serve under you? You don't know what they're going through. What you do know is you know about the nature of man. You know that that people are generally all the same in terms of their needs, their insecurities, their hardships, because we all go through this thing called life. People have all the same relational needs, relationship, very important to everybody. You have a unique relationship with your workers as the boss, and so you need to exploit that and use that for God's purposes, not selfish purposes. You need to have the right perspective. People could be really hurting. How can you be a blessing to them? You need to see them the way God sees them because people are all the same. Ernest Hemingway wrote a short story about a man whose son was estranged from him. And they lived in Spain and his son's name was Paco. And Paco ran away from home. They'd had a falling out. And the father felt bad about it and he he missed his son and he sought to find him. He searched high and low for his son, could not find him. Finally, he took out an ad in the newspaper there in Madrid, and the ad read like this. It said, Dear Paco, meet me in front of the newspaper office tomorrow at noon. All is forgiven. I love you. And the next morning, in front of the newspaper office, were 800 young men named Paco. (laughs) Desiring to restore a broken relationship. See, we all have very similar hurts. We have a shared humanness. And so we need to see that there's no distinction between them and anyone else or them and yourself. 
because you both have the same master and you see them the way God sees them and with God there is no partiality. How do you use your relationship to them as their authority figure to encourage them, to bless them, maybe to lead them to Christ? The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And so as we wrap this up, I just want to sum up the two major thoughts here. First of all, in your notes, we have submissive servants who are respectful, genuine, and kind, and who understand their true reward is in heaven, that your goal in this life is to be a good steward of the breath that God has given you, the time and the season where you are. You don't just uh, uh, languish where you are and hope to get it over with. No, you grow where you are planted. This is a, a, a mere stop on, a, on an extended journey, and God wants this moment where you're working what you might think is a, think is a dead-end job Maybe you don't see anything on the horizon. You maximize that. God is using that in your life. He wants you to be fully dependent on him. He wants you to grow to be a better disciple. And you can do that by serving faithfully in the capacity that you are placed into. He's going to use it in your life. And you make it your mission to make that boss succeed. And you do it as unto Christ. And then second... And closing in your notes, we've got authorities who rightly respond to their employees seeking to serve and never abuse them and who see all people as valuable in God's sight. If you're a boss here today, you've got a unique opportunity. You really do, especially if you're a Christian because you've got access, you've got authority in a relationship to conduct yourself in a manner reflective of your authority. Jesus Christ. You can be a steward of that person that is under you that, that looks like the way that, that Christ stewards your life. That he, he is an authority over you. And this is an opportunity for you in a very unique way to be like Jesus in a manner that other people can't manifest at their station of life. So when you, whether you're an employee or an employer, tomorrow morning you go to that place that perhaps you have dreaded. You have a different perspective. This is where Sunday's theology meets Monday morning. And you turn it over to the Lord. And you make that a completely different experience because of your outlook. You are fulfilling a high, high calling in how you conduct your, your life in that place that we call our daily job. We give it to him. It's our testimony. It's our calling. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just ask your blessing upon everybody in this room. God, we are grateful that we could put food on the table in a variety of ways, Lord. And there are many people that are out of work, God, some through no fault of their own, and they, they'd love to have an opportunity to be gainfully employed. God, I would pray that we would, we would be appreciative of what you have supplied us with, that we'd be a good steward of it, God, that we remember who it is that we represent ultimately, because you can use all things, how seemingly insignificant they may be, God, to bring glory to yourself, and as you promised in Romans, to work all things together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. 
I think back so many stops in my life when I, I didn't understand why I was where I was. I wanted to be somewhere else. And you and your sovereignty and your wisdom knew exactly what you were doing. You were shaping me. You were molding me. God, I could have been a better steward in some of those places. And I pray that we would all have that perspective. And we give it all to you knowing that you can be a, a much better artist and creator with it than can we. And we give this to you for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.